Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Lady Bertram's pug. Woof woof! (laughs) We are so excited to introduce our guest today. Dr. Stephanie Howard-Smith is currently an associate lecturer at the University of York, where her research focuses on the cultural history of animals in the long 18th century. Her doctorate work explored the role of lap dogs in 18th century British culture and society, and she has also worked as a research administrator on the AHRC-funded Pet Histories and Wellbeing Project. Her published work includes essays on a dog cull in 1760 London, porcelain dogs in international networks of exchange, and pugs and cuteness. So truly the perfect guest for today's episode. Welcome, Stephanie. We're so glad to have you, Stephanie. Thank you. I'm just I'm just in overjoyed to have an excuse to talk about pugs. And Pug from Mansfield Park is the uh like the Uber lap dog. <laughs> when I tell people what I did my PhD on, Either they'll be like, oh, why? That's stupid. Or they'll be like, oh, yeah, like Pug in Mansfield Park. He's what everyone reaches for. So, And you're like, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, Pug. So let's set the scene then a little bit. So we are working with Mansfield Park today for the episode. Our reference is from early on in the novel when we're still getting to know the primary characters at Mansfield. And Lady Bertram is a very passive presence throughout the novel. However, in this scene... Austin's narrator takes a few minutes to make sure we understand Lady Bertram's priorities in life. So this is from the book. To the education of her daughters, Lady Bertram paid not the smallest attention. She had not time for such cares. She was a woman who spent her days in sitting, nicely dressed, on a sofa, doing some long piece of needlework, of little use and no beauty, thinking more of her pug than her children, but very indulgent to the latter when it did not put herself to inconvenience guided in everything important by Sir Thomas, and in smaller concerns by her sister. So pug is the most important thing going on right now. (laughs) So Stephanie, we would love to hear a little bit more about how pugs as a breed came to be a popular lapdog in Britain. And if you could also tell us a little bit about their history and just how we arrive at this moment with a pug on Lady Bertram's lap. It's quite a long story. And <laughs> I think there are several different answers. There's the, the answer that someone in the 19th century would give you in the early 19th century in Austin's writing this, and this, the answer someone would give you now. So these days, we think of the pug as a Chinese dog. But in the 19th century in Austin's writing, this wasn't how people consider them at all. And in fact, if you start looking evidence of claims from China there's not actually a whole lot of it so what you do have is they seem to be in like Germany Denmark Netherlands about the end of the 16th century when you start to see these little dogs with kind of bulging foreheads small chins little snub noses curly tails popping up in in portraits and they look a bit more like a, a, a puggle I guess like a beagle pug cross they get to Britain it seems about the 1690s and the story later on is that they're brought over by William and Mary after the revolution of 1688. And that we don't know if that's true or not. But what we do know is that from the moment they get to Britain, they're known as the Dutch dog or the Dutch mastiff. And this is how Austin would have known them. They would have been Dutch dogs or Dutch pugs. or So that's where she probably would have thought, if she thought about it at all, that's where she might have thought they came from. 
There are a couple of people writing who disagree, but it's really not a popular opinion. So Hester Piozzi, who's one of Austin's favourite writers, describes him as, as a uh, transplanted Hollander carried thither originally from China. So she thinks they're from China. And there's one natural historian who is talking about pugs and he is like, okay, well, they came from Indonesia. And he's like, they don't appear to have a use, but maybe there's an animal in Indonesia the pug could hunt because otherwise why would anyone breed such a useless dog? And that uselessness is something that like, obviously carries forward. But I think it's important to note. So just like these days, dogs come in trends, like there are trends for dogs at the moment, maybe like something like doodle mixes are very popular. Same is true in the past, right? And pugs really had their moment from about 1700 to 1760 in Britain. And then after that, they're a bit like passe. It's not that people don't own them anymore, but they're not like the the dog to have, at least not when Austin's writing. So Lady Bertram's dog is kind of no longer a la mode, basically. Yeah. And maybe that's a, that could be a comment on her taste to a certain extent. But it also maybe it's a way of evoking a kind of very 18th century e kind of femininity when these dogs were more popular but it's hard to say but yeah no she doesn't have the trendiest dog okay that could have been something like a maybe a pomeranian might have been more her the lap dog to have would have been not the pug essentially but yeah they're still popular so in addition to the pomeranian what other types of lap dogs would have been popular during this era i'm really curious about what other kinds of breeds of dogs austin perhaps would have been familiar with so Pomeranians, like you just said, but not like the little fluffy things we might recognize today. They're kind of a bit more spitzy and a bit bigger. The other big dogs, there's some bigs that are popular. So lap dogs, you have things like Bichons, Maltese, Bolognese. Although they have the same names, they're not necessarily the same dogs, if that makes sense. They've changed a bit. Poodles are very popular in this period. They're shop dogs, which are kind of the same. They're little dogs with lots of white fur. And then big dogs. Big dogs are way more fashionable in like the 1810s mm. and small dogs. So I think maybe because they're moving away, they're moving away from kind of like artifice maybe. They look a bit more natural. So the, the really cool dogs to have are Dalmatians and Newfoundlands. And Mr. Tilney has Newfoundlands actually, which is interesting. Ah. Yeah. So a, a range of dogs to, to choose from. But most dogs, although we're talking about breeds, this is a period before breeders we know it was really a thing. So these days... Breeds are more defined by things like breed standards, where you know you've got a list, and you know the list will say a pug has a curled tail, its its body looks like this, its feet look like this, its ears looks like this, um, and that's not such a big thing in the 18th century. It, well, it was building in the 19th century. It doesn't really exist. Um, a dog is whatever you call it, and the majority of dogs are of kind of mixed breed essentially, and the vast majority of dogs are kind of wandering about doing their own thing. And we know that there were. I think their their dogs kept at the cottage at Chawton, but we don't know what kind they were. But they seem to be kept by the servants, so they are filling some sort of function. Because obviously, we're talking about pug. Pug's a companion animal; he doesn't have a role. That's like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the dog population in Britain. Like most dogs do have a function. We know whether they're used for sport or dog fighting or ratting or guarding or vermin control. Yeah, so. Companion dogs are a really small kind of part of the puzzle that makes up the 18th century, early 19th century dog population. Yeah. So, so I mean, you've, you've definitely kind of articulated this, that there is a really big difference between a lap dog like Pug versus like the working dogs. So what is it that Pugs signal in terms of class, wealth, empire, anything like that during the Georgian era? 
Firstly, pugs are lap dogs, right? So they don't have a purpose. And that makes them very controversial because at this period of time, pet keeping, as we know, it's still kind of developing. And for lots of people, it's really controversial. You know, the idea that women in particular are choosing to spend their time and money and affection on these dogs, which have no purpose and worse, just consume stuff. Like they're meta luxuries in a way. Like it's a luxury that can eat Mm. or wear or use more luxuries. So that's problematic for a lot of people. Right. And you see this even in things like natural histories, which describe dogs, they'll be like, "Ugh, the useless pug. It's not loyal. It won't come when you call it, which in the case of Pug Bertram is, is accurate. <laughs> but they're really scathing about lap dogs and pugs in particular, because pugs are also, they have these, they have a very particular look. And people at the time, a bit like now, either find that attractive or they find it repulsive. So aesthetically, morally, they're suboptimal dogs to be seen having. And they're decadent. And lap dogs are decadent. That's how people see them in this period. And a lot of that's to misogyny. There's the gender side of things. In terms of, you know, things like status, obviously, again, you have to be able to afford to keep these dogs and to have a dog that doesn't have any purpose. And it's to one extent, that's kind of rejecting some kind of ideals to do with, you know, having good moral economy. It's not a good choice for a household in some ways. In terms of empire... The most famous pug owner in this period is a woman called Lady Penryn and her husband, well, she is an heiress and together with her husband, they own a large number of plantations in the Caribbean and they make a lot of money from the slave trade. And her husband is one of the the most vociferous defenders of slave trade in the House of Commons. And yeah, she was the most famous pug owner and she had a pack of pugs. There's, we know quite a bit about them because she left them a lot of money in the will and in her lifetime there will be stories about they all wear matching red bonnets and cloaks and they're taken out to do their business in Groves and Square and you can see all the pugs going around and I think that's one of the things that you can kind of think about in Mansfield Park and you know the idea that pug has a really cushy lifestyle living the life of luxury and at the same time the, the reason the Bertram family have that wealth is because of the unseen suffering of all these people on Sir Thomas's plantations in Antigua. Yeah, the juxtaposition and Austin's commentary feels quite notable here. Looking at Mansfield Park, it's really making me think about the details Austin gives us and why she chose a pug for Lady Bertram. So what is going on here in terms of Austin's characterization of Lady Bertram and her relationship with Pug, which, side note, Pug's name appears to be capital P Pug? Firstly, so I, I'm with you. I think it is capital P Pug. Pug is Pug's name. Pugs were called Pug before they were known as Pugs. It's a really popular name for them. Right from the 17, about 1700 to the end, it's like mid. It's like naming your dog Spot or something? Yeah, if you have a Pug. Not if you have any other dog, if you have a Pug. So William Hogarth, who I guess is the most famous 18th century pug owner, famously has this pug called Trump. For Trump, there's a pug called Pug with two Gs. So my favourite source for this kind of things are the lost dog ads in the in London papers because they give you a really good idea of what people, firstly, what people, what kind of dogs people have, what they're calling them, and also how they think about them. And you find some great names. And I did check, and either side of the publication Mansfield Park, there are people with pugs called Pug. There's also one called Pug alias Fan, which I thought was quite apposite for this. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So 
maybe there's a point to be made well, you could make the point that maybe Lady Bertram's attached to the idea of having a pug, and that's why she calls it pug. But I think in reality, it's just a, a popular name for them. As for why she chooses them, that's another another question. So there's one theory that has it that her cousin, Eliza, who's this really glamorous figure, the one who marries her, her brother Henry eventually, she, she is a big pug fan. And she writes these letters about her pug's going to the spa with her and taking the waters and like she takes the dog to the doctor and the doctor prescribes it vapor vards so <laughs> austin did know a real life pug lover okay another theory could be that austin was actually aware of lady penryn at the time because lady penryn is mentioned in hester piozzi's travel narrative which we know austin probably read also Lady Penryn's husband, Lord Penryn, is kind of one of the baddies of uh, Clarkson's abolitionist book. And there are lots of similarities, actually, between Lady Penryn and Lady Bertram, apart from the fact they have pugs. And by the way, Lady Penryn actually left £40 each to each of her pugs for each year of their life after her death, which I think is the kind of thing Lady Bertram did if maybe she didn't have oversight from Sir Thomas. But anyway, so they're quite, they're kind of some odd similarities. So both Lord Penryn and Sir Thomas are both plantation owners. They're both also, despite being having titles, because uh, Lord Penryn has an Irish peerage, because Sir Thomas is a, is a baronet, although they both have titles, it, they are still voting in the House of Commons. And Lord Penryn actually becomes really famous as an anti-abolitionist MP. The other, one of the other uh, kind of odd similarities is that Lady Penryn's mother's surname is actually Norris, mm. as in Mrs. Norris. And there's one theory, right, that, you know, that Norris is, gets her name from Austin as a kind of an allusion to the Liverpudlian slave trade. So I think it's entirely possible. Lady Penryn is very well known. She's bringing out these packs of pugs in the middle of central London in one of the kind of the top addresses on the whole town. And after she dies, people keep on talking about how much she liked these pugs and how ostentatious she was with her wealth uh, in terms of bestowing them with all these very expensive accessories. So I think it's entirely possible that Austin was A, aware of Lady Penryn, B, aware of the fact that she really liked these pugs, and C, that forms another kind of connection to the slave trade in a way similar to the ones that arise elsewhere in Mansfield Park, like the name and Mrs. Norris's name and so on. Right. And, and so like the kind of level of Lady Penryn's notoriety with her pugs that was happening that was happening in Austin's lifetime prior to the publication of Mansell Park. So definitely something she could have incorporated in if she wanted to. Yeah, 100%. So as early as the 1780s, going into the 17, uh, the 1810s, absolutely, she was very well known and well known for having this pack of pugs that she spent a lot of time and money on. Again, whether it's intentional or not, it's interesting, you both have these two characters, well, one real, one fictional, who are making a loss of money from the labour of enslaved people. And they're spending that money on these useless black dogs. And I think in some ways, there's a, I think, even regardless of whether Lady Bertram is meant to represent or reflect any part of uh, Lady Penryn's character, I think Pug's inclusion in Mansfield Park is another kind of criticism of that kind of vitiated lifestyle mm. that's funded ultimately by, by slavery. So to one extent, Pug is part of this continuous trope in British fiction at this time, which has women owning lapdogs and crucially caring more about the lapdogs than the people around them, especially when those people are treated badly. 
so the literary scholar uh, Mark Manellis, he calls this countersensibility. Mm. So the idea that a character is excessively focused on the, the perceived suffering of one of a, of a creature like a lapdog, right. but feels or demonstrates no feelings whatsoever about the real suffering of other people. And here that could be the unseen enslaved people on the plantations. And to a less extent, it could be Fanny. You know, it's it's Mariah and Julia and Thomas and Edmund. Right. Well, you kind of addressed this. So, so you recently shared with us your most recent article, Little Puggies, Consuming Cuteness and Deforming Motherhood in Susan Ferrier's Marriage. And you really do talk about this idea of, of cuteness kind of being actually kind of problematic. It's really, really interesting. Again, there's this kind of larger history, or rather in, in culture, of people presenting lapdogs as a threat to women's natural instincts. You know, so the idea that when women get these dogs, they become more focused on the well-being of the dog than they do on the well-being of their children or their spouse, which I think to a certain extent is the case in Mansfield Park. And Pugs in particular, there's a, a novel that comes a bit after Mansfield Park, this marriage by Susan Ferrier, who is a Scottish writer. She's often described as a Scottish Jane Austen. And the novel is very similar to Mansfield Park. So if Mansfield Park is for some reason your jam out of all of Austen's books, read Marriage, because it's like Mansfield Park, but about the same length. And there are more pugs. They're like five pugs. And in this book, you know, she talks and baby talk to them. And this is something you see, I guess, elsewhere in 18th century, you know, people talk, treating like dogs like babies and finding them. Although they don't call it cuteness, what attracts them to these dogs is cuteness. And there's always a, this kind of anxiety in lots of this writing that, oh, these women... They get confused so easily, like oh, they want a baby, but they've got a dog. Maybe they think the dog's the baby. And that's kind of, a, is this kind of, yeah, oh, which goodness. is obviously patronizing. But what's interesting is it's not just coming from men. There's this bit in the vind- in a, a Vindication of the Rights of Woman where for some reason, Wollstonecraft just goes on a rant about lap dogs twice. <laughs> and she's just like, oh. I was in this carriage journey once and I had this, oh, this woman was in it and she's really annoying and she wouldn't shut up about her lap dog. And she was nice to her lapdog and her child. And then she picks up a few pages later. And again, she just talks about, you know, the idea that this this awful, I think she describes her as like a tasteless being. Yeah. Is it surprising that such a tasteless being should rather caress this dog than her children? Which is exactly what's happening in Mansfield Park. Yeah. So again, taste comes into it. I think it's a kind of over effeminacy, if that makes sense. It's taking... Okay. So obviously it's not wrong for men to like dogs. There's something they're seen as a good thing for kids to have. But you can take it to the extreme. And that's clearly kind of what's going on with, with Lady Bertram. Yeah. And that, that actually, that reminds me of like one of my favorite pug moments in Mansfield Park. This is later in the novel when Henry Crawford, he's already proposed to Fanny and everyone at Mansfield is essentially trying to persuade Fanny to accept. And so in the middle of all this like intense family pressure that Fanny is getting, Lady Bertram seems to just randomly say, and I will tell you what, Fanny, which is more than I did for Mariah. The next time Pug has a litter, you shall have a puppy. <laughs> it's like the weirdest out of context thing to say. Can you help us make sense of the scene a little bit more? Yeah. Personally, I would love to be given a puppy. Right? I'll marry Henry Crawford for a pug. Yeah. Fanny is like, take, <laughs> take this opportunity while you have it. But I think it's supposed to be a very weird thing to say. And this is kind of, I suppose, in tune with Lady Bertram's character where she says these bizarre things occasionally and has like totally long priorities. So that kind of fits in there. But to a certain extent, it does make sense. 
I don't want to sound like a Lady Bircham apologist, but (laughs) (laughs) if you look at 18th century correspondence of dog lovers, and Ingrid Taig has written a book called uh, Animal Companions, I really recommend it, but she talks about the role that dogs play in correspondence, especially between families, and they kind of offer you an opportunity to, to demonstrate your bonds with someone else, especially, you know, it's very popular for parents to give dogs to their kids. Because the best thing about a dog, right, is that it's not like a book. It's not like a ham. You don't just read it or use it once. It's something that keeps doing stuff. And it means that when you write letters to someone, you always have this thing you share to come back to. Kind of, it's generative in a way. Mm. Also, so there's a theory that there are two pugs. John Sutherland writes these books about literary puzzles. And one of them is pug, dog or bitch. And basically he writes about the fact he thinks that there are two different pugs, both called pug. I don't buy into it personally. <laughs> and one of the reasons he says is that because at one point pug's described as a he, but at this period in time, people really haven't worked out what pronouns for animals. It's kind of a blur. And his other theory is that, you know, pug's too old. That, you know, let's assume that pug because there's this time shift, right? From the beginning of the from novel. When, from when Panny gets there to when she's an adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think he thinks that Pug's too old, but I did talk to my friend who's a vet and she said it's entirely plausible that Pug is still having puppies at Pug's age. Pug is getting, she's getting on a bit, right? That This could be, I suppose, one of Pug's last litters and one of a last reminder of Pug. So if you think about it like that, if you think about it as a gesture of Lady Bertram's emotional investment in Fanny and an interest of continued emotional investment in Fanny, combined with the fact that Pug is clearly of extreme emotional significance for her. It's weird, but it's quite nice in a way. And also weirder that she didn't do it for Mariah. For Mariah. Yeah, for Mariah. No Pug puppies for you. (laughs) (laughs) So because of the scene, do you tend to then read Pug as a female dog? Yes, just because there's no discussion about that how the litter is going to rise is next time Pug has a litter. So I, that's that's always what I've assumed. I would assume there'd be some kind of, you know, the next time Pug sires a litter or something exactly. like that. Or, you know, I'll write to my friend so-and-so, which is what people did, which is write letters, be like, oh, let's get our dogs together and they can make more beautiful dogs. <laughs> and then letters, sometimes people be like, they talk about dogs almost like they're courting partners. They'll be like, oh, no. <laughs> So-and-so makes his pledge to so-and-so and they will meet this year. <laughs> it is strange. And people found it strange. And uh, people made fun of people for doing it. It is, it is odd. There's no getting away from it. But yeah, this is what people do. And because I guess with pugs, like you do have to be, like you have to keep on mating with other pugs. Otherwise you wouldn't keep on having like generation after generation of like, at this point, they're pretty similar to how we'd imagine now. Obviously they have shorter snouts and they're a bit leggier, but they do tend to be the same color. They do tend to have these shorter noses. In this period, weirdly, people crop Pug's ears. That's something that we've stopped doing. Ooh. Yeah, so Pug in Mansfield Park wouldn't have any ears. So yeah, definitely. Would she be hooking up Pug with a friend's Pug? That's how it would be happening. I mean, really, Fanny does not understand just what an honour is being conferred upon her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just women who are doing it. It's men too. And I think, yeah, there's kind of another way if you think about Lap dogs as being a criticism of kind of uber femininity. At the same time, you do have characters in Austin's novels who are male who are doing the same thing, but with a different kind mm-hmm. of dog. So like 
Sir John just being obsessed about, you know, he doesn't care about Willoughby's character. He's just like, oh, he's got a really nice pointer though. <laughs> or yeah. like uh, John Thorpe in Northanger Abbey, just like boring on and on and on about foxes and uh, hounds and horses and that also being bad manners. So the, it does go both ways to a certain extent. But shockingly, lapdogs get more vitriol. Is it perhaps because it's the difference between, a you know, a lapdog versus like you could conceivably call these other dogs working dogs and therefore they're masculine and have a purpose and so we don't look down on Yeah, this. definitely. So there's definitely this gendered element to it. There was some criticism at the time of people building these massive kennels or spending all this money on, on dogs that, again, they kind of have a point, but they kind of also don't have a point. And um, there, so there were some criticisms, but they're never as strong and they're not as culturally dominant as kind of anti-lapdog streak in a lot of 18th century, early 19th century culture. I think it's one of the reasons we like pug. It's like, it's easy to see bits of yourself and your own relationships, relationships with your dogs in it, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, it's humanizing in a way. Presumably it's not humanizing some Austen's readers originally, but for us, it's like, oh, Lady Burton's not so bad. She's got this dog and she really likes it. And it's a funny character. It's so true. Because it, it it does seem like one of the most tangible elements of her personality. Mm. Right. The fact that The fact that she loves her pug, that seems to be the most accessible part of her personality to to a lot of readers i think it is it, it's it's at least for me that's that's the case yeah and i think that i think pug just is a good stand in for her right because just like her you know her needlework is of little beauty and no use the same could be said of pug so he totally encapsulates her character but in terms of finding pug attractive so the composer benjamin britton comes up with this idea in the early 20th century that he's going to do a mansfield park opera and the way he sells that to his patrons, who would be the Christie family, who have this kind of country house where they have an opera festival almost, is he says, you know, okay, we'll do this Mansfield Park opera, but your pug, the kept pugs, is going to play pug. And that's like, yeah, like that would be the 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 thing that would sell them on it. They'd be like, okay. oh yeah, our pug has a, a star turn. <laughs> but it never came to pass. In the leading role. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would be thrilled if somebody wanted to cast my dog in something. So I understand this. <laughs> Along the lines of adapting Jane Austen, are there any lap dogs or other dogs in Jane Austen adaptations or other period dramas or in any of Austen's other novels? But are there any of these dogs that stand out to you or do you have any particular favorites? So obviously Mr. Tilney's Newfoundlands and puppies are up there because they let you know that he's a good guy. And I think this is something we've kind of held on to, the idea that you can't be a terrible person if you like dogs. Mm. I think the the dogs in Sense and Sense in the Angley Sense and Sensibility are good, but it's never clear quite who they belong to. Are they are they Sir John's? Are they Colonel Brandon's? And there's a, a tweet last year, I think, maybe by Maddie Pelling, who is a eighteenth century historian. She's like, Why, you know, Marianne, why are you passing up Colonel Brandon when he's got this great pack of dogs with him? <laughs> and yeah, I think That's clearly a signal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a bit like I suppose it's something that we still hold on to today. The other thing with regard to Austen. And this is something I don't think I've seen in any adaptation, is that there's this moment in Emma where Emma is looking out on Highbury and she's describing what she sees. And one of the things she sees are two curs fighting over a bone. And I never noticed that moment until I was teaching a module where it was discussed. And I was like, oh. And I think in terms of adaptations, we kind of have to miss like the number of dogs that are just about us and about the place, not doing anything. Because you can't really have that on a film set safely. 
like the fact that the majority of the dogs in Britain aren't owned by really, they don't live in houses, they're working dogs, so they're kind of feral. The number, so I think that's that's something that all adaptations kind of have to have to do. But thinking about how these ideas, you know, we know Austin's readers know Mr. Tilney's going to be a nice guy because he has these puppies and he likes playing with the puppies and that's how they have a good time. I think so many of our ideas we carry forward from this time that, you know, that being a dog person means you're not terrible. That there's a level, you have to be at some level good. And I think with lap dogs, we've carried that forward too, that there's some le- something about them that's a bit suspicious. Like, I don't think you could cast a leading hero in a period drama and give him a whole load of poodles. I think we still have these really gendered idea approaches to, to dogs. Mm. I think people would still find that not suspicious, but not congruent, shall we say, with the role that's supposed to be projected. On the other hand, like we still definitely have lap dogs do a lot of cultural work in period drama. If you think about Bridgerton, you've got all of Queen Charlotte's Pomeranians there. And she did have some in reality, but obviously uh, they look a bit different. But they tell you something about her character, right? They tell you that she's got a lot of money and she's got a lot of servants who can, you know, look after these dogs the whole time. And they also tell you maybe that, a bit like Lady Bertram, she's a bit detached from her human relationships. What's well, making me think about that scene in the 1995 Emma where Emma and Mr. Knightley are doing archery and he has like his huge, I'm not sure if they are deer hounds or, or wolf hounds, you know, these like very big masculine dogs. Like you said, I can't imagine an adaptation where they would have given him like a couple of pugs sitting there (laughs) off to the side. (laughs) Yeah. And it's when you think about it, it's weird that we still attach so many values to dog choice and how it hasn't really changed, even though it's very clearly rooted in some quite backward stereotypes. So there's nothing. I mean, obviously, a deer hound can hunt stuff, but, you know, so can a terrier. But you wouldn't necessarily give, you know, Mr. Knightley a couple of I don't know Yorkies or something that would right. be that'd be weird so I think that's one way that there's this kind of level of continuity between Austin's readership and people today we still have these quite like regressive approaches to what our dogs mean but also again we're still so invested in like the idea that a dog can't tell you about someone also oh I have mentioned other pugs and period dramas obviously I don't know if you've watched the Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette, but Mops, so there's a scene where uh, she has to give away her pug when she moves to France. That actually happened in reality. That's And that's when she's crossing from, from Austria into France, right? It, when she's made the journey from Austria and presumably she's at the German border or something and she's crossing over and she has to kind of leave behind her, her life. Yeah, something that actually apparently happened. And, but she did have more pugs after that. Obviously, pugs were a thing for in continental Europe, as in a thing, as like a trend in continental Europe longer yeah. than it was a trend in in Britain. Well, Stephanie, is there anything else on pugs or lap dogs of this time that you want to share with us before we wrap up? I mean, apart from everything. <laughs> um, no, I just think, we're talking about adaptations, I think one of the things is that you can't ever really capture. Every dog we choose is a dog of the 21st century. You can't, You there's no way to actually cast an accurate historical dog because they've changed so much in the last 100 years and you can never kind of like get perfect but that said you know give Henry Tilney all the Newfoundlands more screen time for them (laughs) absolutely but yeah I just there's just something about dogs in in literature that is kind of connection to the past and everyone can kind of see their relationship 
in someone's relationship with the dog, whether it's good or bad. And yeah, just more dogs, more dogs everywhere. (laughs) Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and learn more about your projects and just follow along with your your dog-loving antics? So I'm on Twitter. My handle tag, whatever, is at S.A. Howard Smith. I tweet largely about 18th century animals, if that's your, your thing. It's not always cute. Sometimes I find weird stuff. But so far, I've largely published academic work, but hoping to get it out there in public in future. So yeah, keep your eyes peeled. Also, I wrote this article for Slate about the Corgi and Bridgerton. So if anyone is curious about the Corgi and Bridgerton, also I just like ruining people's, you know, we're talking about, you know, those books you get with all this dog information on. For some reason, I just, I really like pulling apart dog myths. (laughs) So the idea that Corgis are fairy steeds, that's rubbish. Some English were made up in the 40s and somehow it's like become Welsh legend over time. And yeah, so if that's your thing, yeah. I can't believe you have just destroyed my illusions that corgis were once like horses for fairies and (laughs) fae folk because, wow. You were building some real hopes and dreams on that, weren't you? Yeah, I really was. (laughs) Thank you again so much. It was so fun having you on today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Just like overjoyed to spew pug facts (laughs) at unsuspecting people to share the joy that is all things 18th century lapdog for their kind of cute, bitey weirdness. Long may it continue. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Thank you again to Dr. Stephanie Howard-Smith for joining us for this discussion. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode where we will be talking about Harriet's treasure box with guest Damien Scott. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.